Hi, this is Melissa Harrison with the Religion Unplugged podcast, and joining me today is Mark Gerson. He is co-founder of African Mission Healthcare and chairman of United Hatzala and host of the Rabbi's Husband podcast. And he is going to answer the questions that he has talked about in his new book. It's called The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. So thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Melissa, thank you. It's so good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And this is so exciting that your book has been released. You know, you talk about every Jewish family wants to honor the Passover holiday, but there could be something more to Passover. Tell us about what you really hope to accomplish through writing this book. Passover is really the first holiday of the Jewish nation in the Bible. And the most important question I ask about Passover, with which I think people are at least passingly familiar, people of all faiths, the important thing to really understand about it is, what is it? And the Bible tells us exactly what it is. And in fact, it's two things. One, it is the authentic and biblically ordained Jewish New Year celebration. The Bible tells us that the holiday shall occur at the head of months. Hence, it's our New Year. It is also our spring festival. Now, every culture in the world has a spring festival. In the book, I wrote that the American Spring Festival was the Easter egg hunt on the White House lawn. After it was published, I realized I was wrong. The American Spring Festival is opening day. So how do we feel on opening day? We feel renewed. We feel rejuvenated. The sense of newness and opportunity is in the air. and, uh, And that's when Jews, as the Bible tells us, celebrate our new year. And it's so important that Passover occurs in the spring, it says it shall occur in the month of spring, that even though Judaism is on a lunar calendar, what that means is that any day should fall off throughout the course of a year, given enough time. But seven out of every 19 years, we have a leap month to affix the holiday in the spring and thus have the Jewish calendar revolve around Passover and have Jewish life around Passover. So why do we have our new year and our spring festival at the same time? Because When we situate the new year in the spring, it tells us what the opportunity of a new year is. It tells us that this is the time now to take inventory of ourselves, to go outside, to figure out who we really are. And then in the spirit of newness that is literally feeling the air, let's make some commitments. Let's think about who do I want to be next year, individually, personally, nationally. Let's make some commitments and let's assume some responsibilities so I can become that person or part of that people. Which is so good. I think, you know, to your point, it's it's interesting how we all know of Passover, but whether you're Jewish or especially if you're not, just to understand the true meaning. So I love how Mark, too, in the writing, you say things like, you know, God didn't design the Seder to put you to sleep, really to, to literally wake people up to, to the meaning of the holiday. And what's the intention of being able to receive during this time? Absolutely. And uh, Passover Seder is a time of joy. Biblically commanded joy, joy in the Bible, in the Jewish imagination is a commandment. It's in the Bible, joy is a commandment. So particularly around Pesach, this is our spring festival. This is our new year. We come together in joy. We come together with our family. We come together with other families. We come together with Jews and Gentiles and strangers, all to celebrate this great holiday together. But it's a celebration that is at once joyous, a lot of fun, and very serious because we are asking life's great questions, trying to understand who we are now and who we can be with God's help in the coming year. And we do this together and we do it in the spirit of joy, but also in the spirit of real deep 
contemplation and commitment. The chapter titles are so interesting too. You have some like the logic of the Seder plate. So especially for those of us who are not Jewish, tell us about the meal and tell us about what you talk about in that chapter in particular. Sure. So um, this, uh, when we sit down at the Passover Seder, which is every Jew around the world today and historically, we're all telling the same stories, asking the same questions, trying to extract the same lessons from the Exodus, and we're eating the same foods arranged in the same order. The, the continuity is spectacular. So in the book, I go through a couple of the items that are familiar to basically all Jews that are on every Seder plate. And one of them is the egg. And so of course, when we come to any symbol, and this by no means pertains only to the Seder, this is just what we're talking about now, but we could, we could apply this logic to any symbol. And that's kind of the point is that the purpose, one of the great purposes of the Haggadah and of the Seder is to really help teach us the meaning of life. So this teaches us how do we approach a symbol? So we look at the egg. Now, there are some people who say that the egg um, is the Jewish symbol of mourning because it symbolizes the roundness of life. And so in our time of joy at the, at the Pesach Seder, we must too remember sadness and mourning and that there will be good times and there will be bad times. And in fact, when we get married, Jewish men under the chuppah, which is the canopy under which we get married, we, which is our moment of greatest joy, we step on a glass, we break the glass. So why do we break the glass? To remind us that in our moment of joy, we're acknowledging the destruction of the temple and, and, and other sad things that are going to follow. That's one interpretation of the egg. Um, another interpretation of the egg is that the egg is like the Jew, which is the harder you boil it, the tougher it gets. Okay, so which of these is true? I don't think anybody would say either of them is false. It shows that there can be multiple meanings of the same thing, and we can extract multiple truths, neither of which are contradictory, from the same thing. Or take the haroset, which is this delicious, uh, really Passover-only concoction of nuts and apples and wine and a bunch of other things. So it's red. So people ask, what does the haroset represent? Some say it represents the bricks that we made while we were enslaved in Egypt. And other people say it represents the apple trees under which we made love while enslaved in Egypt, thus representing the triumph of Jewish hope that even in the most difficult circumstances, we always yearned for and believed in a better day and perpetuated ourselves through having children. So which is it? Is it the bricks or is it the aphrodisiac? Well, nobody would say that either is wrong. They're both, both interpretations embody different ways of understanding and enriching ourselves by the story. So interesting. The imagination, that chapter, the most important part of reality, what do you really want people to, to learn from that or to think about? Um, so the, uh, the, that chapter derives from the fact that um, our charge for the Passover Seder is to relive and retell the story of the Exodus. Um, yet when we tell the story of the Exodus in the Haggadah, we actually don't do it through the book of Exodus, which is very strange because the entire story of the Exodus, of course, takes place within the book of Exodus. Instead, we go to Deuteronomy, which is the last book of the Bible. And not only that, we go towards the end of Deuteronomy. Moses is great summing up and we tell the story there. But we tell the story from the vantage point of the farmer. Now, the farmer doesn't exist in Deuteronomy. The farmer is literally in Moses's imagination. Moses is envisioning a farmer years from him, years from Moses, in a land, in the promised land, which of course Moses dies and never gets to. 
So Moses tells the story of the Exodus through an imaginary man in a land that he never got to and never saw. So why are we telling the story through our imagination? I think there are a lot of a lot of reasons, but one of which is it tells us just how central to human reality the imagination is. It's such an important part of reality that we tell our story through an imaginary man. Then one like, well, I thought imag- imagination was for kids, like uh, fairy tale stories. It's not the imagination. No, no. The, and so then we ask, well, why is the imagination such an important part of reality and not a, a childlike fairy tale kind of uh, dynamic? It's because every decision that we make involves the imagination. From the most prosaic decision to we're sitting down at, I don't know, we're sitting at a restaurant for dinner and let's think of the most unimportant decision we can make. Should I order the chicken or the burger? Well, what are, you're imagining in a half hour, which will I enjoy more, right? It's, it's the imagination. And then let's get to something more important. Should I take this job or that job? Should I pursue this line of work or another line of work? Entirely of the imagination. We're imagining ourselves six months from now and 60 years from now and try imagining ourselves 60 years from now. It's hard to do, but it's important to do. And we're trying to think, where will I be happier? Where will I be more fulfilled? Where will I make a better contribution? All the great questions and decisions of life are functions of our imagination. And so what Moses is telling us is that when it comes to telling our story, we can write our own stories, but the way we do so is with a fully primed and active imagination. Such a good point. It's been, it's really great to see the response you've gotten to, to the book from so many different people. Um, Senator Joseph Lieberman commented, gave a blurb for it. Um, A.R. Bernard, who's with the Christian Cultural Center in Brooklyn, um, says, quote, the Jewish people have a powerful message from God to share about being delivered from a life of slavery and brought up into God's purpose for them as a nation. He says in this book, the telling Mark Gerson helps us to understand so much about the importance of the Passover and how it impacts our lives today as Christians. Um, and I know in your book, you really want to help um, Jews be able to share the richness of their history with their Gentile friends. Right. Uh, how do you encourage people to do that? And why is it so important? Oh, what a great question. It, it, it's, it's so important for a variety of reasons. The, the most important reason is that we uh, Jews and Christians right now are living in a world historic moment of Jewish Christian friendship. We, we Jews have been around for 6,000 years and we have never had friends like we have among you uh, today. N- never even close. In fact, we are cursed in the Bible, in the book of Numbers, by the Gentile seer Balaam. And what's Balaam's curse? You shall be a people who dwells alone. Well, now the curse is lifted. We are no longer people who dwells alone. The biblical curse is lifted and it's been, it's lifted in really the last 40 years in the lifetimes of almost everyone who's listening. Now, this curse has been lifted. It's lifting is an ongoing process. It's gradual. It's happening real fast, real fast, but it's ongoing, meaning we can participate in it. And uh, I've been so blessed to be able to speak to dozens of uh, Christian groups really about the book but it's not just about my book. Of course, it's about the Haggadah and the Exodus story. And I've just seen such profound love of all things Jewish. This is love of the Jewish people, love of the Jewish state of Israel, love of the Jewish religion, love of our shared texts um, with this great Christian quest to rediscover their Jewish roots. And uh, it's and it has just been such a, a an honor and such a deep pleasure to participate in. 
And uh, it's all happening in our times. And I think it has theological significance. What's the theological significance? I don't know. But God tells Moses, you will not see my face. You will know me by my back. So perhaps, God willing, our descendants will know the significance of this moment we're living in now. But not only living in that we're building together. And so it's awesome. Even more practically, um, let's talk about Christians at, at Seder's. Um, up until last year, when we only had immediate family, of course, for COVID reasons, we always had Christians at our seders, and God willing, we always will, resuming uh, next year and forever. And and then the question is, why is it so important? And I think for two reasons. One is the seder is an imitation of the last meal in Egypt from Exodus 12, and Exodus 12 was enjoyed by Jews and the mixed multitudes, in other words, Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles together. So when we are trying to be true to the Bible, we should have Gentiles there. And there's a very practical reason, too, is that we Jews can sometimes suffer from the problem of familiarity, which is we've all been going to seders every year since literally before we can remember, because every Jew goes every year, which means even infants go. One of the problems with familiar things is sometimes the, the magic and the awesomeness of them just ceases to be so evident, no matter what the familiar thing is. But when we have Christians come to our seders, inevitably, it's the Christian who makes has an insight that no one ever thought of before, who has an observation that gets us thinking, who brings such enthusiasm and such delight and such appreciation that gets us to, to really appreciate our own traditions even more. I mean, I was speaking with a Jewish group the other night and uh, one of the attendees said, you know, uh, uh, two years ago, because last year was just immediate family because of COVID, he said, but two years ago, um, it was a Christian guest at my Seder who said, you know what, I just noticed something, Moses is on the Haggadah. Now that is one of the best, questions and observations that anyone can make about the Haggadah. I have a whole chapter on that. But I said to him, of course it came from a Christian, right? Because the Christian's looking at this anew and fresh and says, wait, wait, we're supposed to be telling the story of the Exodus and there's no Moses, which is one of the great questions, which uh, this person began an investigation on his part, which is really one of the purposes. The other thing is that this um, great Christian uh, Jewish faith friendship has its provenance in the Bible. So we Jews, we, we haven't had friends like you in 6,000 years until now, but in the Bible, we did in several instances. So Abraham's best friend and mentor, the person who steered him straight as a Jew when he was about to go in a bad direction and seemingly make a deal with uh, the king of Sodom after the battle of the four kings against the five kings is King Melchizedek, who was the Gentile king who said to um, Abraham, you are a child of the God of the most high. And Abraham, with that reminder, with that strength, and with that confidence of the Gentile friend, became a better Jew, and here we are today. Moses' best friend and mentor was his father-in-law, Jethro, who was a prince of Midian. And Jethro, who it says is prickling with joy when he sees Moses after the Exodus, tells Moses, you're not governing right. You're making all the decisions by yourself. You're going to wear yourself out, and it's not good for the people because essentially you're not empowering them. Moses complies. We see the same kind of friendship when... Um, Abraham's servant Eliezer goes to find a wife, his servant, Gentile servant Eliezer goes to find a wife for Isaac and guides the great Rebecca back to, to Isaac. We see the same thing with Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, another Gentile. And it was Caleb and Joshua who were the two courageous scouts or spies who say we can conquer the land. So this great Christian Jewish friendship that is so new and so incredible now, it has biblical providence and it's just such an honor to be living it. That is awesome. And talking about in your book too, making sure to instill and pass all of this on to your children too, which I think is so beautiful in the Jewish faith that you do so well 
But do you feel like there's room for improvement there or things that people could do to even deepen this um, tradition and really passing, passing it on? Absolutely. There's, there's, yeah, I think both things you said are absolutely right. One is, um, one is let's just talk about education for, for a moment. Now, let's just say that if we, let's imagine a politician of either party running for office and not saying our children are our future or education is the most important issue to me. We would say to that person, what is wrong with you? Right. It's because we just expect it. Yet we don't expect it because it's natural. It's actually completely unnatural. All it proves is how successful Moses was. So Moses sets out in Exodus 13, 14, and something spectacular happens. The Jews have an opportunity to leave Egypt after the 10th plague. Now, after several of the previous plagues, the Pharaoh had told the Jews, you can go, and then had uh, kept us. He had changed his mind. So what are the odds the Pharaoh would change his mind again? Very high. So how quickly should Moses leave Egypt? Very fast. Yet he doesn't. He stops to give a speech about educational philosophy. Why does he stop to give a speech? What he's basically saying saying is, if we don't agree right now, to the importance of education, there's no point in going. So you're going to listen to me right now. And that's what he does. And then in Exodus 13, 14, he has this astonishing statement. He says, when your children ask you, if it were me, I would say, Moses, uh, thank God I have four children, but like, you don't know what my children are going to ask me. So maybe you could say, if your children ask you, or should your children ask you? And he would say, no, I say, when your children ask you, because Moses, the psychologist knew that all children around the world from his day in the past and forever would share one thing in common, which is curiosity. And all of us parents know exactly what every single two or three-year-old says about 25 times an hour, right? We all know the one question they ask. And Moses said, exactly, exactly. And and Moses saw kids saying the same thing, no doubt. It's not in the Bible, but there's no doubt. It doesn't have to be in the Bible because it's so obvious that that that's what Moses knew. And so, because all kids everywhere say the same question. So Moses said, it is upon that, it is upon the children's why that I will build the future of the Jewish people. And he does. He, he basically uh, instructs universal education and mass literacy. Education can lead to challenging and challenging can lead to subversion of authority. And Moses says, I get it, but I'm going to perpetuate the future of the Jewish people. Uh, and so education consequently has always been a core Jewish value. Um, Shakespeare's daughters uh, didn't, they were illiterate. I mean, Judith Shakespeare signed her name with an X because girls, women, girls and women in those days, they, there was no notion of instructing girls and women in literacy. It was just the way of the world at that time was you don't educate very, you don't educate very, very many people. And uh, certainly you don't educate uh, the girls and even very few of the men were educated. But by the first century AD, around the time of Jesus, um, every Jewish community, if a Jewish community did not provide universal education and mass literacy to its boys and girls by age six or seven, that community was exiled. So um, we've, uh, we've always had it. And, uh, and um, can we do better? Absolutely. We can do better and we can do better and we must do better. This is I'm talking right now about the Jewish people and educating our children, no doubt about it. And, uh, and in fact, uh, it's such a great uh, question, Melissa, because um, I have another chapter in the book called the unfinished, which is that, the hallmark of a great Jewish story is that it completes unfinished. No great Jewish story can ever be finished. Wow. And I mean, this is all throughout the, 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 the Haggadah and even in the Torah where Moses dies without getting to the promised land. Why? Because no great Jewish story can ever be finished. So what is a great Jewish goal? A great Jewish goal is one that you cannot complete in your lifetime. And so certainly we have a lot of improvement to do with education. We always have to be in a state of growth. We always have to be in a state of improvement. And this is particularly for things that are so important, like education and 
yes, we, we Jews can, can and should do a much better job of, of educating our children. And your book was released on March 2nd. How has it been to receive feedback? What kind of response have you gotten so far? Anything that surprised you? Um, the feedback has been deeply gratifying. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really been wonderful. I mean, and this is in terms of the, uh, the critical reviews, really all from everywhere from commentary to national review to uh, really all over the place. And uh, um, those are the m much more uh, uh, recent ones, but the, the, the reviews have been uh, really gratifying and it's really gratifying to just read from such a diverse group of sources uh, what people think about it. The emails from readers have been gratifying too. I mean, it's, it's, it's so great that people can find people so easily and just share their thoughts and their ideas and and uh, so that's been gratifying, too. And, and the most of all, really, has been the opportunity to speak in front of so many different groups, such a diverse cross section of faith seekers, both Jews and Christians. The audience have been invited to speak with. I think I think it's about 50 50 Jews and Christians. Um, and uh, and it's uh, it's not even like there's much of a concerted effort. I mean, it's it's just uh, it's just there's so much desire um, on behalf of Jews, but equally Christians to understand the um, Jewish perspective on the Exodus story and on our shared biblical narrative that inspires and instructs us to this very day. And you are a large supporter, perhaps the largest individual supporter of Christian medical missions. Um, tell us about the work that you do, that you do there for people who don't know and, and why is that so important for you to support? Yeah, so um, I co-founded African Mission Healthcare, that's, that's the name of our organization, in 2010, when um, uh, my very close friend and partner in African Mission Healthcare, Dr. John Fielder, who's been a Christian missionary doctor in Africa since uh, 2002, when John identified the largest humanitarian problem in the world is the lack of access to care in Africa, and the people on the ground who were doing the work are Christian missionary doctors working in Christian missionary hospitals, who for a variety of reasons, largely sociological, they're no longer as consistently supported as they once were and not even close to what they need to be to deliver needed medical care. This is everything from maternal care to surgery to primary care to everything, neonatal care. Uh, we started an organization in 2010 to uh, be their partner and we do it in three ways. At African Mission Healthcare, we 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 do uh, we partner with Christian doctors to provide clinical care for the African poor, uh, infrastructure uh, um, to build everything from power so they have consistent power to water to oxygen to housing to education uh, buildings, and then um, and then we also provide training because our largest goal is that um, there will be far more doctors serving uh, people in Africa in the next generation than there are now. And so we do a lot of training and uh, it's just been a, a real blessing to be able to work with so many, um, you know, there's so many incredible people. I mean, I'm thinking about the, uh, um, the Christian missionary doctors, you know, there's this um, kind of um, lore, it's not Jewish law. There's this lore in Judaism that the world uh, rests upon the shoulders of 36 righteous people. And we don't know who they are. Well, I know who a bunch of them are. I mean, I actually know them. I mean, these are the Christian missionary doctors uh, working in Africa. And uh, I mean, these are, the, the, these are genuine heroes among us. That is fantastic. The work that you're doing there. Also, you have some people may not know that your wife, Erica, is a rabbi and you have a podcast called The Rabbi's Husband. Uh, yes. Tell us about the podcast for people who might want to check it out. 
yeah. So the uh, the rabbi's husband. We launched the podcast over the summer. Yes, my wife is a rabbi, and um, I'm in conversation with uh, lots of different people. Everyone from uh, uh, pastors and rabbis and uh, ministers and Jewish scholars and athletes and business people and physicians and entrepreneurs and nonprofit leaders and uh, U.S. senators and congressmen, all kinds of people. And what we do is we just say, uh, what is your favorite passage in the Bible? So the guests will tell us their favorite passage in the Bible. Then we'll have a discussion about what does that passage mean to you and how does it help you to live your life in a better, happier and more fulfilling way? I'm definitely going to check it out. That sounds oh, great. Thank you. That sounds great. So, Mark, your your book, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. It's available now everywhere books are sold. Um, such a pleasure to talk to you today, Mark. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, Melissa, thank you. What a great conversation. I so appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. this is great. So we will check you out. Thank you so much for listening to the Religion Unplugged podcast. Once again, Mark Gerson, our conversation has been with him. He's an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, um, a supporter of Christian medical missions. And you definitely want to check out his book, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by Melissa Tamplin Harrison, edited and produced by Peter Freebie. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is a part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.com.